morning, Christ Point. Hope you are well this morning. If you haven't yet turned to John chapter 2, I want to invite you uh, to do so now. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I love attending weddings. I love officiating weddings. I love having the opportunity to see uh, people gather, whether it's family or friends, and celebrate uh, the love that a man and a woman have for each other. Uh, there is nothing, there's nothing on the planet that beats attending a wedding. Perhaps you've been there before, you've been able to celebrate the love of someone you love. Uh, you've been able to come and communicate with your presence. I am for you and I want what is best for you. I, I love weddings, but uh, every once in a while, uh, something can happen at a wedding that is unexpected and that you did not plan for. I don't know if you've ever uh, had this experience before. Uh, maybe you've been scrolling through your phone and uh, you've come across a wedding ceremony that quickly goes sideways. Maybe uh, someone who is not supposed to pass out, they pass out. Uh, maybe you've heard stories before of the pastor who gets sick on uh, the day of the wedding and, you know, they're kind of needed for the ceremony and yet they're not there. Uh, maybe you've heard of a bride or a groom before who has had a cold feet and kind of need to be talked into uh, showing up on that particular day. Weddings are wonderful events. They are joy-filled events, but uh, when something unexpected goes wrong at a wedding, uh, it can have a ripple effect. And in John chapter 2, uh, we read about one such wedding. Uh, it was a time for uh, people, family, and friends to come and to gather and to celebrate, uh, but there's something that happened happens at this wedding that, quite honestly, uh, the crowd there did not see coming. Uh, it was not unusual for the rich or for the poor to have a wedding ceremony, to throw a feast, a party, and celebrate a couple that was getting married or in love. And that's what we have here. We have a couple that has come uh, to marry one another. We've had family and friends who have come to gather and to celebrate uh, that love, but something uh, unexpected happens on that particular day. Uh, perhaps you've heard at weddings that the party doesn't start until the pastor leaves. Can't imagine why that would be the case. Apparently, folks like me are not super fun to have around, uh, but here at this wedding, the party doesn't really start until the rabbi does something spectacular. Uh, Jesus here in John chapter 2 does something that, quite honestly, people did not see coming. It says in John chapter 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Uh-oh. Like all of a sudden, we are confronted with a serious wedding problem. It's not that the venue has been double booked. Uh, the rabbi didn't get sick. The groom doesn't have cold feet. The issue is that they have no more wine. This, believe it or not, is significant. This wedding that took place apparently was a larger event based on how many uh, water uh, containers that were at the wedding. 
Uh, but when the, when the wine runs out, this is an issue, and it's an issue for a couple of reasons. Number one, culturally, it was an issue because uh, the groom, who in many ways was considered the host of the party, it would be shameful uh, for him not to have enough wine for his guest. And so on one hand, though uh, those who had, get, who had gathered for this wedding uh, might be looking over their shoulders if the wine ran out, thinking to themselves, like, what's the deal? Like, what happened to the wine? Where did it go? Uh, but there's a second reason why this would be a big deal, and that is because uh, many people believe in that culture that if wine ran out at a wedding ceremony, that the, the groom could actually uh, face charges. He could face a lawsuit uh, from the guest. So, so needless to say, um, this is an issue. It's an issue. If you've ever invited people over to your home before and maybe one or two people who you didn't expect actually came uh, to your house and you look at the food you've prepared and you think to yourself, I guess we could maybe cut the chicken in half or maybe thirds if we really need to. Have you, have you been there before? You know kind of the embarrassment maybe of not having enough food that you need for your guests. You probably haven't experienced or felt what they felt on that day. But Mary see, sees what is happening and she decides uh, to spring into uh, action. Now, maybe you read this story, you hear this story, and there's a couple issues that you have with it. Uh, number one, depending on your background, where you came from, or, or your view of alcohol or wine, uh, maybe when you hear that the wine is running out at the wedding, you think to yourself, well, good. <laughs> it's a good thing they've run. They've had enough, and they don't need any more. Maybe growing up as a kid, that was uh, something that your family did not partake in. Uh, maybe you are a teetotaler. You just think of wine or alcohol, and you think, you know, I want to keep my distance uh, from that. Uh, that uh, never ends well. And to be quite honest with you, there are plenty of passages in Scripture where if you wanted to kind of camp out and find a passage that warns us of uh, the danger of drunkenness or of alcohol, uh, you would not have any problem finding a text. Right? Typically in Scripture, there's not story after story after story of someone who has a little too much to drink and then makes wise and godly decisions. But right? it usually doesn't end that way. Typically, you find yourself reading a story and thinking to yourself, uh-oh, like this is not going to end well. And so there are plenty of passages in Scripture that warn us about the dangers of alcohol. Jesus uh, warned against uh, drunkenness. Paul did in his letter to the, the church at uh, Galatia. Uh, there are Old Testament after Old Testament passages that, that encourage us and that warn us uh, to be wise when it comes uh, to alcohol. If you are here this morning and your family has been directly impacted or affected by someone with alcohol dependence, um, then you know that this is not a laughing matter. And maybe you, you've seen it abused before, and so when you are around it, uh, you think to yourself, uh, this is not going to end well. 
Uh, Maybe your family has been impacted by it. Maybe you personally have been impacted by it. Maybe you can remember a foggy night or two back from your college days or back from your early 20s or your late 30s or your 50s. Maybe a night or two where you think to yourself, I, I probably would like to have that back if I could. Um, so alcohol is, is no joke. Scripture warns us or talks to us about the dangers of it. And, and it's important to know that Scripture oftentimes uses wine as a symbol of joy. Uh, Psalm 104 verse 15 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. To the Jewish mind, wine uh, symbolized joy. In fact, uh, the rabbis had a contemporary saying. It went a little something like this. Without wine, there is no joy. One commentator says that we could literally translate Mary's words, they have no more wine, as they have no more joy. At this precious time of life that should be celebrated and filled with everything good, uh, the joy was running out. The wine was running out. Jesus' mother saw this potential dilemma, and she decided to spring into action She said uh, to Jesus, they have no more wine. In other words, she was coming to her son and she was inviting him to do something about the problem. She was inviting Jesus to fix the issue at hand. She knew who her son was. She knew who Jesus was. She knew, at least in part, what he was capable of doing. And so she invites Jesus to fix the problem. Notice how Jesus responded. He said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, needless to say, a few questions arise when we read this passage. First, why did Jesus address Mary, his mother, as woman? In our day and age, this way of talking sounds inappropriate or even rude. I can go out on a limb and assume that the married men who are here this morning have never referred to their wives as woman. And the reason that I know that is because you're here this morning. And yet, here is Jesus referring to his own mother as woman. But you have to understand in culture, woman was really a a title of respect. It was like saying ma'am or madam. Remember, Jesus used the same word when he addressed Mary from the cross. This is also how Jesus referred to the woman at the well in John uh, chapter 4, a passage that uh, we'll come across in just a few weeks. And so this this phrase was really a, a polite form of address in the Jewish culture at the time. Secondly, though, we read this passage and we think, well, what did Jesus mean when he asked, what does your concern have to do with me? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? An interesting question. If you look at the passage in various translations, you will see various arrangements of those words. Even today, Greek scholars kind of debate on the best way to translate this phrase. Literally, it means, what is this to you, to me? Which, is, which sounds almost clumsy. It's a little awkward. 
It's a strange and awkward construction, and translators have tried to render the passage as best they can. But it seems like Jesus essentially was saying to his mother, don't tell me what uh, to do in my earthly ministry. Jesus was reminding reminding his mother that, that he was... I'm calling the shots. I think of John chapter 8, verse 28. It says, I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus says later in John chapter 5, my Father is working until now and I am working. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So, I mean, you could make a strong argument or a case that, that Jesus is, in a polite sort of way, uh, rebuking his mother uh, for her approaching him, saying to her son, hey, why don't you fix what is broken? Like, do something about this. They're running out of wine. What is interesting to me is that after Jesus says these words to his mother, Mary, he essentially does the very thing that she asked him to do. It's as if Jesus said to her, hey, listen, don't, don't boss me around. Right? This, is, this is my ministry. I know what I'm doing. And then Jesus, in turn, does what actually Mary requested that he would do. A church, you know that Jesus can handle our imperfect pleas. Even when they are misguided, even when they miss the mark, even when our motives may be a little misaligned. In other words, when we come to the God of the universe imperfectly with our requests that he has laid upon our hearts, God can handle it. He can handle it. Even if he lovingly corrects us at times, we can also point to times in life where he goes, okay, I can do that. And that's what he does with his mother. He kindly says to her, ma'am, ma'am, I, I got this. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And then he actually does what Mary requested that he do. The the third question that we grapple with in reading this passage is that, that Jesus said something to his mother that is very interesting. He said to her, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. If you study uh, that phrase throughout the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, you'll, you'll see it repeated over and over and over again. Oftentimes when Jesus says that, it is in reference uh, to his passion. It's in reference to uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It's uh, something that he says uh, to prepare the people for what will take place in the future. I think of John chapter 7, verse 30. It says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight twenty. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
John chapter 12, verse 23 through 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, in a sense, knew that the glory of her son Jesus would be revealed. It would be made manifest. Jesus lived his whole life here on earth with the weight of that impending hour. And so when he said to his mother, it is not yet time for me to enter into my glory, he, he was reminding her again that there was something greater that was in store, but now was not the time. And yet, just like Jesus does with turning the water into wine, uh, Jesus is going to display his glory uh, to his disciples. I mean, you can almost imagine this conversation. Je Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, do something. Right? We're, we're running out of joy. And Jesus responds, Mother, don't, don't tell me what to do. This is not the time for me to display my glory. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm going to display my glory. And that is what he does. Our imperfect request, church family, to God, do not fall on deaf ears. Uh, if you're waiting to make that perfect pitch to God, uh, to, to say exactly the right thing in the right way, then wait no longer. Uh, go to God with your request. He'll, he'll sort through it, your, your misaligned motives, the reasons that you ask for what you ask for. God will sort through that. Just go to God. Uh, you likely have longings and desires in your own heart. Maybe the problem that you face is not wine running out at a wedding, uh, but maybe you look at the world around you and think to yourself, I really wish that God would do something about this. Ask God to do something about that. Just go to Him. Bring those things to Him and watch what He does. I love what Mary says after this interaction with Jesus. She, she says after that mild rebuke, speaks these words to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, uh, do it. That is wise, sage advice. Just listen to Jesus. Whatever he says to you, whatever he says to you, just do it. A couple years ago, I met a gentleman, his name's Jeremy, uh, and he owns Ultimate Athlete in Huntersville. Uh, it's a place where people uh, who are fighting middle age go and exercise. Um, that is probably why I show up at 7 a.m. Um, I have many problems in doing this. Uh, I love it and I hate it. Um, I love running my mouth. I don't love running. Uh, but I will gather at 7 a.m. a few times a week, and I do my best to provide comic relief uh, to my middle-aged friends who have gathered. Jeremy 
Uh, I know you don't know Jeremy, but he's obnoxious. You know, he's just, he has muscles and he's really athletic. It's annoying. He talks about healthy things all the time. Like occasionally he'll give us like a health tip for the day. Like the other month, he, he brought in some little powder of electrolytes and he's like, hey, hey guys, that's how he talks. Hey guys, because he's got muscles. He's like, I just, this is something I do every day. I just put a little scoop or two in my water and mix it up because my water, a little flavor, it's electrolytes. I just drink it throughout the course of the day. This will keep you hydrated. And I said, uh, you know, Jeremy, you know what else will keep you hydrated? And he's like, what, James? I'm like, milkshakes. Milkshakes will keep you hydrated. He didn't think it was funny. A little while after that, he was saying, hey, after your workout, I like, because that's how he talks, after your workout, I like to go home, eat a little something healthy, have some oatmeal, some plain oatmeal, maybe some berries on top. And I'm like, Jeremy, you know what else is good after a workout? He's like, what, James? I'm like, donuts. I like donuts after a workout. And he kind of rolls his eyes. A few weeks ago, he was giving us the workout for the day, and he was encouraging us to take our dumbbells and our kettlebells from this side of the gym and take them over to that side of the gym. And I said, Jeremy, I have a question. He's like, yes, James. And I said, how are we going to get the dumbbells from this side of the gym to that side of the gym? And he started laughing at me, and he's like, James, just do what you're told. Just do what you're told. Mary looks... Uh, at the crowd, the servants, and says, see that guy? Like, just do what you're told. Like, whatever he says to do, just do it. And they do. This is what they do. This is what happened. Verse 6 of John chapter 2. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone who serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. One author writes, in the Mideast, water pots made from mud have been used for generations and are still used today. But the Jews also made jars and vessels out of stone for the simple reason that the water contained in those pots would not become contaminated with dirt. Every Jew who came to this large wedding celebration had to go through a purification rite before he could enter. If nothing else, he had to wash his hands and his feet when he arrived for the wedding feast. These jars were for that purpose. Right, so these are ceremonial uh, jars. These were, these were large jars of water where people would go and they'd wash their hands and they would wash their feet. And so Jesus looks at the jars and says to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And when they finished, he directed them. Now I want you to draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast, who was an official who managed the event for the bridegroom, tasted the water and immediately realized it was wine. But it wasn't ordinary wine. I mean, it was the good stuff. It was the best that the master had tasted so far at 
the feast, the master, as you can imagine, was amazed because what people would do, this makes sense, for their feast, for their wedding feast, when people would come and gather, they would give them the, when they would give them the good stuff first. Right? This one went to Harris Teeter. They didn't look for the sale. You know, they looked for the good stuff. They'd get the $30 bottle or the $40 bottle, and they would give their guests the, the very best. And then when people would stay and, and hang out and, and enjoy the festivities, when they continued to bring out more wine, they didn't bring out the good stuff. People already had the good stuff. They had their fill, and so they would bring out stuff that was a little more inexpensive or stuff that was maybe even, even cheap. But that's not what happens here. What, what happens here is Jesus does something miraculous, something that people would not have ever expected. Not only does Jesus uh, produce wine, but he produces the good stuff. If you do the math, Jesus created, spoke into existence some 150 to 180 gallons of wine. So what happens when uh, the wine runs out? What happens when the joy runs out? Jesus makes more. Jesus makes more wine. Jesus makes the best wine. Jesus makes an abundance of wine. Most commentators agree that this large amount of wine is a sign of the abundance of God's grace. You need something? God says, I'll give it to you in spades. I'll, I'll like blow your sandals off. And that's what he does. Some people read this and suggest that Jews drank wine in the Old Testament because a water was no good, that they drank it out of necessity. But water, uh, water for the most part was fine. It was, it was drinkable. Wine, though, was reserved for special occasions. I and mean, pe- people knew this. They, they knew even the poor in that culture, when they would have a wedding celebration, they would provide wine for that occasion because it was a big deal. Jews saw wine as a gift from God. It had the ability to gladden of the heart. And so it seems pretty clear from my perspective that, that Jesus came and produced the real stuff. Not, not something watered down, but the good stuff. And Jesus does this. He does this. He's been doing this for all of human history. It's interesting, when you, when you look at the, the life of John the Baptist and you, you compare it or contrast it with the life of Jesus, it seemed like they operated very differently. You ever notice this? We studied John the Baptist a couple of weeks ago. John the Baptist uh, comes as a, as a teetotaler, right? Uh, he, he comes as l- similar to the prophet Elijah. He's, he's dressed in, in kind of an odd sort of way. People look at John the Baptist and go, he's a, he's a bit of a radical like he's, a, he's kind of a strange bird. Like John isn't necessarily the guy that you would invite to the party. Like he, he was a bit weird almost. He didn't drink. People believe that John took a Nazarite vow. He stayed away from the stuff. But Jesus, when you look at his life and how he operated in that uh, culture, Jesus went to dinner parties and he participated in feast 
and other celebrations. He, he made uh, the wedding list, and not only was he on the list, but he apparently came to the wedding. Scripture says of Jesus that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Much the same was true of the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus. Jesus explained that it was appropriate for John and his followers to be in the mode of a total abstinence because he carried out his ministry while the bridegroom was present. But Jesus was the bridegroom, and it was appropriate for him and his disciples to celebrate. And that's what they, they did. When we look at this story, this first miracle of Jesus, there's some important symbolism that, uh, that we should note. Uh, Jesus used wine as a symbol when he announced the coming of his kingdom. He said, no one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new one makes a tear, a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. Jesus was telling the people that he represented a change from the order of the Old Testament, for he was bringing the new wine of the kingdom. Jesus was going to operate in a different way. At the Passover feast, at the Lord's Supper, Jesus gave wine new significance for the people when he pointed to it as, representative, as a representation to his spilled blood. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' first miracle, his first recorded miracle in the Gospels is here in John chapter 2. It is Jesus turning water into wine. And I have to be honest with you, I would not expect that. I mean, I just wouldn't. If you were to ask me, James, like what would be the first act that the Son of God would perform uh, to reveal in part his glory uh, to his people? That would not be my first guess. I could see why Jesus would give sight to the blind. I might even understand why he, why he might come alongside someone who is lame and uh, give them the ability to run and to jump and to play. I could even understand uh, Jesus speaking to someone who was mute and giving him words uh, in his mouth. I, I, I get those miracles. They are miraculous. They are otherworldly. But Jesus' first miracle, his very first miracle, I was showing up at a wedding. And essentially, when the joy was running out, Jesus provided more of it. Uh, four observations from the text. Number one, God cares about your joy. God cares about your joy. I wouldn't say that this is the main point of the miracle, but it's certainly hard to ignore. I don't know your view of Jesus. When you think about Jesus or the Savior of the world, I don't know what comes to mind. I don't know your perspective or the feelings that you have about Jesus, but this shows a unique side uh, to the Savior of the world. Jesus showed up at a wedding and mass-produced good wine. Let that sink in. Jesus isn't writing a position paper uh, for, uh, for the benefits of drinking wine. He's not arguing that we shouldn't be teetotalers. Jesus uh, is, is not trying to state a, a case for why you should or why you shouldn't drink. That's, that's not what he is doing here. 
But Jesus, in part, at the wedding ceremony, is saying to the crowd, if you want joy, man, I'll give it to you. Because that's what he does. A friend said to me this last week, James, it seems like most all of the other miracles have assigned value, but not this one. I thought that was interesting. All the other miracles have assigned value, but not this one, meaning all the other miracles have a very definable outcome. I was blind, but now I see. I couldn't walk, but now I can run. I couldn't breathe, but now I'm alive. But this miracle just feels different. There's no quantitative outcome. There is just joy. There's there's just joy. Joy, And I think that communicates something about the character and the goodness of God. I think this shows us how God deals in part with his kids. It is not a stretch to say that God cares about your joy. He cares about your joy. And listen, you and I, we are hardwired for joy. I don't care who you are. You want to experience joy. Every decision that we make in life is a pursuit of joy. You want joy in your marriage. You want joy in parenting. You want joy in your church going. You want joy in how you live your life, what you do for a living in your relationships, how you spend your free time or resources that God's given to you. You long for joy. And I think so often in life, we want to push that aside and we think to ourselves for some reason that if I long for joy in my life, that must not be from the Lord. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Right? It's as if God knows that we are hardwired for joy and then he actually gives it to us. I'm not suggesting that God has created us to be hedonist and we should chase after anything and everything that brings us temporary and fleeting joy. I'm not saying that. But I am suggesting that God cares about your joy. He shows up at a wedding and mass produces wine. We also learn from this story that God does not give begrudgingly, but abundantly. God does not give begrudgingly, but abundantly. I have a friend who once uh, told me that he tries to live a pretty disciplined life. He says, I try to keep away from sugar as best I can. I don't have a lot of desserts. But he said, every night, every night, he goes, I I keep um, dark chocolate in the refrigerator. And he said, I'll I'll go to the refrigerator and I'll take just one piece of dark chocolate. He he lives a very disciplined life. Too much chocolate, he knows, is not good for you. And so he just has one piece, like one little taste of sweetness, but not too much. Like if you were to read this story, it seems like Jesus basically plops down the wedding party in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. (laughs) He's just going like, Like, look what I've done. 180 gallons. God does not give begrudgingly, but gives abundantly. Third observation, miracles or signs were and are meant to display the glory of Christ. This, um, this is the point of the sign and of the miracle. The story, again, listen to me, is not primarily an argument 
about whether or not one should partake of wine. That's, that's not the point Jesus is trying to make. The point is that miracles or signs were to point to something great. And the thing that they pointed to that was great was Jesus. Circumstantial change, although good and beautiful, is secondary, is secondary to the display of the glory of Christ. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. When Jesus performed miracles in his earthly ministry, he did so so that they would be signs that would point to a greater reality. And the greater reality that he was trying to point people to was to himself. To himself, not himself as a great teacher or a wonderful rabbi or a future leader, politically speaking, of the people, but the Savior of the world. Jesus was flexing. Like he was showing off. He was telling the people, to anyone who would listen, like, <laughs> like I can do more than you can even imagine. Like, watch, watch this. And Jesus does this again and again. The effect of Christ's miracles were not insignificant. But I'm sure if you ask the blind man or the lame man or the grieving mother or father celebrating the healing of their daughter or son, they would tell you that the work that God has done is not insignificant. Or to, the, to the wedding party who was there, who was worried that they would be embarrassed or shamed because they ran out of, out of wine, they probably would say to you, that was a, that was a big deal for them. But, but that wasn't the biggest deal. The biggest deal was Jesus revealing himself. And the reason that um, I say that, the reason that I say that those miracles, although they are good in and of themselves, are not the main point is because in every situation where God performed or did a miracle through his son Jesus, all of those circumstances ultimately were faced again. Like the, the blind man that can now see, eventually, apparently, he probably got older. And his sight began to leave him again. Right? The, the lame man who can leap and run, like he, he aged. He wasn't as quick anymore. Lazarus. Lazarus died. All of those miracles, so good and so beautiful, not insignificant. Talk to someone who's experienced the miraculous work of God in their life, and they will tell you they are not insignificant, but they are not the main point. The, the glory of Jesus is the main point. Jesus, all throughout the Gospels and all throughout Scripture, is going, hey, like, look at me. Look at me. Miracles and signs are meant to display the glory of Christ. And lastly, miracles and signs were meant to build faith in Christ. Verse 11, this, the first signs, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. The result of the miracles was that the disciples 
believe. Jesus was inviting people to follow him. Jesus was inviting people to believe in him. And the same call and the same invitation is here for you and for me today. I think so much of the Christian life can be summed up with a simple question of God asking his kids, do you believe me? Like, do you trust me? Like, do you trust? This is a life of faith. Like the God of the universe is going, do you trust me? Do you believe me? So Jesus performs miracles, and it says, and his disciples believed him. This, by the way, is the point of the book. It's the point of the gospel of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in, the, in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so may you, Christ's point, may you believe and have life in his name. Will you see the ways that God has miraculously worked in your heart and in your life and has worked throughout all of human history and say, God, I believe. May God give us faith to believe of this morning as we consider the greatness of God together. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for uh, loving us enough to reveal yourself to us. Uh, thank you that you have shown us the beauty of your son, Jesus, uh, that you have moved in miraculous ways, that you've given to us uh, signs that point to uh, the glory of your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for going public with your greatness. God, I pray that we would never grow weary or tired of seeing who you are, of being blown away by how you work. God, give us hearts uh, to believe. I pray that you would pour your faith uh, into our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.